You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, we're going to continue to worship as we do as a church body. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Acts in chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Now, as you're turning there, I want to speak a little bit about what it means to be a Christian. What is a Christian really? Now, we might all have sort of some shoot-from-the-hip, knee-jerk answer to that, but what is a Christian really? It's been, I think, increasingly important to have an understanding of that, especially when things are going on in our world like they're going on. How a Christian answers that question is probably very different than the rest of the world answers that question. Almost certainly. And in fact, if you are one who happens to pay attention to what's going on in sort of Christian media, Christian culture, it's been a very strange week and a half or so when a very large name, shall I say, celebrity pastor, essentially announced that he no longer believed anything that he had been preaching. He had written many uh, well-marketed and well-sold books, but he, by the name of Joshua Harris, a senior pastor in Maryland said, you know what? I'm out on this deal. I don't believe it. I don't believe in Jesus. I am no longer a Christian. He left his wife. He recanted all of his views about the LBGTQ community and essentially said, I'm sorry, everybody. I'm I'm out on this deal. I don't believe it. I'm not a Christian, or more specifically, I'm no longer a Christian. And I think as I thought and studied and prayed this week, there's probably not a person in this room who doesn't have a somewhat similar experience with a friend or a family member. I certainly know that I do. Where someone said some words when they were seven at a vacation Bible school, but as they grew into adolescence and adulthood, they sort of just walked on the whole thing and they said, yeah, I don't believe that any longer. I'm no longer a Christian. So I feel like this is a very good opportunity for us as a church to speak directly into that. What is a Christian? Well, a man who is not by any means famous, not a celebrity, named Mike Ferris, wrote a letter to Joshua Harris, this former pastor. And he said, I can't get in touch with you. You won't answer my calls. So I'm just going to write an open letter to you. And I want to read this letter because I think it is the most accurately, pertinently worded letter that I could, I could speak into. I've edited it down because there are some portions of it that were just personal, but I think it speaks directly to where we are when we want to understand what it means to be a Christian. This is what Mike Ferris has written to Joshua Harris in light of his, what he calls his deconstruction. He says, Josh, you have walked away from your marriage. That's not right. You have walked away from your faith in Christ. That's even worse. This says nothing about Jesus and a great deal about you. I just want you to hear that because he's right. Jesus told us there would be false prophets and teachers among us. Your story doesn't invalidate Christ's message because he predicted that people would do exactly what you have done. I just didn't expect it would ever be you. My heart aches for you in so many ways. It seems that you thought that Christianity was a series of formulas. Let me say that again. 
because I know so many people who persist in living as if that were so. My heart aches for you in so many ways. It seems that you thought that Christianity was a series of formulas, formulas for marriage, formulas for systematic theology, fear of choosing the wrong formula, fear of failing to live up to your formula. I would never reach this conclusion about you on my own, but what you have said yourself can be fairly summarized as this. You thought your faith and your marriage were based on formulas, and they never went deeper than that. Jesus says about people like you that in the last judgment, he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You know that this means you never actually knew him at all. As immersed as you were in Christian culture and a career as a pastor, you never actually knew Jesus. It gives me only heartache to say these things to you. And Jesus will take no pleasure in pronouncing those words in judgment of you or anyone. You haven't walked away from a relationship with Jesus. You have walked away from the culture you were raised in. I want to say that one more time. You haven't walked away from a relationship with Jesus because let me insert editorially, no one does. But you can walk away from the culture in which you were raised. Jesus still loves you at this moment, and so do I and countless others. And I will love you no matter what in the days ahead, but my love is tinged in deep sadness. Josh, you and your story are not the measure of the validity of Christianity. Boom! Josh, you and your story are not the measure of the validity of Christianity. Jesus is real. He doesn't want you to return to your prior formulas. He wants you to come to him for the first time and learn to love. I'm praying for you, Josh. With much love and sorrow, Mike Ferris. I have prayed blessing over Mike Ferris this week. I don't know the guy. He's no one of consequence in terms of Christian celebrity. But I'm thankful for his wisdom in saying the right things. Because what Mike Ferris knows that Joshua Harris does not is that a Christian is someone who loves Jesus and is like Jesus. Who loves Jesus. Not the idea, not the formula, not the culture, not the ideology. Who loves Jesus. The person who is alive, who did a thing on their behalf. Who loves Jesus and is like him. Not exactly, not identically. Oh no, not yet. But that doesn't happen by default. Nothing drifts to good. It takes leadership. And so in light of our installation of these men to serve as elders and deacons, I want to talk about leadership. What does leadership look like in a Christian context? Because no one becomes a Christian all by themselves. It's been said, no one trusts Christ until they trust a Christian. So what does that look like? I want to invoke and cite here that great grand theologian, one of my heroes in the faith, that's right, Tom Landry. Tom Landry, who wonderfully accurately said, my job is to make others do what they don't want to do in order that they can do what they've dreamed about doing all of their lives. Isn't that a great 
picture of coaching. It's also an exactly accurate picture of Christian leadership. To drag people where they don't want to go because we are all saddled and burdened by the flesh and the sin nature to accomplish all that they could possibly dream of. That is leadership. And today we're in the book of Acts. We're going to look at two people, two leaders that are going to show us that, which is our big idea for the morning, and it goes like this. Leaders lead people to Jesus. Or I might nuance that. They point people to the sacrifice. They lead people to Jesus. Not just teach an awful lot about the culture of Christianity or Christendom. No, 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 no. They lead people to Jesus. That's what leadership is all about. So we're going to walk through Acts chapter 11, all of it. And I'm going to do this more rapidly than you'll believe. We're going to cover the entire chapter. And uncharacteristically, I'm going to drop seven principles for Christian leadership right in the text as we walk through. Seven principles. Why not six? Because six would be evil. Of course it's seven, because it has to be seven. So seven principles of Christian leadership. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who, went through, who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Let me give a really quick backstory because we're just parachuting directly into the middle of a very long narrative passage of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is Dr. Luke telling us about the birth of the church as it is blooming and blossoming and going forth. It's different than we expected. The kingdom is breaking through. Now, Acts chapter 1 through ver chapter 8 verse 4 is all about what's going on in Jerusalem. And through chapter 8 verse 4, we're introduced to the, the, the growth through the gospel and then the persecution that follows when in chapter 7, Stephen is martyred. And in chapter 8, the first four verses were introduced to a man named Saul of Tarsus, who was a persecutor of the church. And then we have this parentheses where the story sort of shifts from Acts chapter 8, verse 5, all the way to chapter 11, verse 19, we've got this great big parentheses. So I'm dropping in right here in chapter 11 at the end of this parentheses where we're talking about all of the other stuff that's going on in the church, really not related to Saul of Tarsus, future apostle Paul. There's a little story in chapter 9 of his conversion, but really this is what's happening outside of Jerusalem as the church begins and continues to expand. So, again, Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Now we know from chapter 10, that is specifically referring to what's happened at the home of a man named Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion in the town of Caesarea which is far to the west of Jerusalem on the Mediterranean coast. The Spirit of God has fallen. Gentiles are believing this. And the brothers, the believers who are around Judea near Jerusalem, they hear about this and they go and report it to the leadership. Now, how did they hear about this? Twitter, of course. They were just, you know, at Caesarea Christian, you know. No, of course not. But that kind of news travels fast. And what we're going to find out is it wasn't really good news to those who are reporting it. They hear that Gentiles are beginning to believe in Jewish Messiah, and somebody wants to be the first one to report it to someone that they think is more important than them. You know somebody like that who's always got to be the one to report the news to someone they feel is more important than them. Don't be that person. 
don't be that person. They were telling on Nan and Abubu what was happening back in Caesarea, that Gentiles were becoming believers. Verse 2, so when Peter went up from Caesarea, he traveled east and then up in elevation to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, let me just say, as I've tried to pastorally counsel this campus as often as I can, if and when you should ever be invited to a circumcision party, do not go. <laughs> it will not go well for you. Listen, if they, it's the wrong kind of party, all right? Don't go to those kind of parties. Well, the circumcision party is that group of people who was relying on formulas for their religion, legalism, who were trying to maintain and sustain the culture of religion rather than entering into saving knowledge of the Son of God. When, this, when that party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them, which is a strange accusation, by the way. It's a weird juxtaposition. Of it. You were eating with uncircumcised people, to which I want to go, how, how do you know? What, what was going on there? Because that, by the way, that's not what the text is talking about. That, that's just an accusation. In other words, they don't like the formula that Peter is using. They're not questioning his message. They're questioning his method. We just don't like how you're doing it. You're not following our formula. Peter responds. Verse 4, But Peter began and explained it to them in order. Peter patiently lets the facts speak for themselves, does not respond emotionally or reactionarily. This is a sermon to myself here because that is my tendency. Peter just gives them the facts. Verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and in it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, I got to tell you something. This is fascinating. We hear this story recorded for us by Luke three times, twice in chapter 10 and once here in chapter 11. Luke records the story three times. That's really significant. The only other thing that gets reported that many times is Paul's conversion. Luke will record what happened, and then Paul himself will preach on it two more times, and Luke records that. Why? Why is that such a big deal? Because Luke's readership is Roman. Luke is writing primarily to the people who are in Rome to encourage them that, hey, this really happened. It's not a myth. It's not legend. It's not lore. This is history. It actually happened. And it's super significant that you Roman, Gentile, Western, Roman Christians understand and be encouraged in your faith. This really happened three different times. What we're going to find is that Peter discerns God's will. This is instructive for us. How is God's will discerned? Well, look at what happens. Peter says, I was praying. I received revelation from God. And then we're going to see it was confirmed by circumstance. That's sort of the mindset we want to have for how do we discern God's will. We pray and we seek revelation, which what does that mean? God's revealed and inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word. We go to God's word because God's will will never contradict God's word. I hear people all the time say, God wants me to get a divorce because he wants me to be happy. And I say, wait a minute, what book was that again? Because it's not any of the ones that I have called Bible. So Peter is praying, he gets revelation from God, and then it is confirmed by circumstance. Most of us, candidly, transparently, we get it upside down. 
We want to know God's will by some sort of mystic experience or circumstance. Like, hey, I wonder if God wants me to take that job, and then we look for some sign. Rather than praying, seeking God's word, and then allowing circumstance to confirm. James Montgomery Boyce, wonderful old pastor, put it this way. He said, circumstances are only good direction if they confirm what God is teaching. Circumstances are only good direction if they confirm what God is teaching. Now, Peter tells the story of being up on the roof praying, praying for what we don't know exactly, but he has a vision for others, which is principle number one, Christian leadership. Principle number one, leaders have a vision for the group they serve. Leaders have a vision for the group they serve. They're not merely reacting to and responding to crises. They have a bigger idea in mind. Peter's given a vision by God, and he realizes, oh, this is what the church of Jesus Christ now is. This is the messianic community, and Peter, an apostle and a leader, maintains that vision. Okay? Let's keep reading here. Verse 8, but I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again to heaven. Peter is at least transparent and saying, I'm thick-skulled and hard-headed, and I didn't want to believe, you know, the voice of God. Because it so violated my pre-existing formula. But I've realized that this is not about a formula. It's about a relationship with a person who is alive. Verse 11, And behold, at that very moment, note the circumstance, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. Verse 12, And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Which brings me to principle number two. Leaders are willing to risk what is comfortable. Leaders are willing to risk what is comfortable. Sometimes the greatest enemy of Christianity is merely convenience. But Christian leaders are willing to risk that. Peter, for starters, is at the home of a man named Simon the Tanner, which means it was ceremonially unclean. Tanners work with animal skins. They're unclean. And that's where Peter is staying. He's risking his own comfort. And then these six strangers show up and say, come with us. Now, why does Luke bother to tell us that there are six men at the house? Because in ancient Egypt, in Persia, in Babylon, in Greece, and in Rome, seven witnesses confirms a thing legally. In every ancient civilization, in all of them, seven witnesses, ironclad, airtight, case closed. This is history, not legend, not myth, not lore. This happened. Be encouraged. This is what is distinguishing Christianity from so many other cults and sects that did not happen. Joseph Smith did not hear from Jesus. He didn't. And all of the other fringe sects and cults did not either. But this is verifiable with witnesses. Seven witnesses. Luke is not wasting details here. Number two, I already said, leaders are willing to risk what is comfortable. Verse 13, and he told us, the centurion in Caesarea, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So 
Principle number three, leaders are willing to endure criticism. Peter is about to deliver a very exclusivistic message that there is only one way, that there is Jesus, he is God, and this Jesus is alive. That's going to be an unpopular message to many people. In fact, in Rome, legally, in the Roman Empire, you could believe in any God. You just couldn't say that there was only one. At this time, the emperor has been bestowed the title Dominus e Deus, Lord and God. And Peter will walk into the home of a Roman centurion who was a Gentile, who was a part of the occupying force of Israel, and say to him, Jesus is Lord and God. That is a message that he's probably going to be criticized for. By the way, Christian leaders will do it anyway. And by the way, that may be a message that you're uncomfortable saying. It's true nonetheless. So again, principle number three, leaders are willing to endure criticism. Verse 15, Peter says, As I begin to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. Now that's significant. This in the book of Acts is the third of four fallings of the Holy Spirit, four Pentecosts, you might say. We have the church being born in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit falls. In Samaria, the Holy Spirit falls on the Samaritans to, to show, hey, this is how the church is breaking forth. And then the Spirit falls on the Gentiles in chapter 10. That's right, the church is even going to the Gentiles. Finally, in Acts 19, the Old Testament saints and prophets, the Spirit falls on them. And that's Luke's way of saying the transition period is complete. There will not be another. That is not the normative thing that happens in the church. The Spirit fell on those different uh, settings and scenarios to demonstrate the overlap of the old age and into the new. Because when God does a new thing, it's the new thing. Because God says so. God has the purvey to do that. I hear people to this day say, well, what we should really be doing is living according to the old thing. And I think, man, I would totally do that if you were God. But you're, you're, you're not close. And neither am I. And what God says is that this is the new thing, and so we're going to abide by that. So, Principle number four. Peter quotes scripture to interpret what's going on. He quotes Acts chapter 1 verse 5, remembering what Jesus had said, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So principle number four, leaders challenge misunderstandings about God. There was a misunderstanding about God from this legalistic group. They thought it was about a formula, about a process. Leaders challenged misunderstandings about God, and Peter uses Scripture to clarify. Now then, verse 16, And I remember what the Lord, had, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? You get the sense that Peter was trying to stand in God's way, but realized it wasn't going to work and it was a bad idea. Like, oh, I tried to stand in God's way, but I can't. This is what God is doing. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Even these legalistic Jewish people begin to say, oh my goodness, it is a new thing. God's doing a new thing. It's not about a formula. It's about a relationship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 18 in chapter 11, you can sort of close the giant parenthesis that starts in chapter 8, verse 5. Now we're going to move back to sort of getting ready for the Apostle Paul and what's going to happen there. Now, verse 19, 
Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, again Stephen is killed at the end of chapter 7, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So they're Jewish believers still just preaching to Jews. Ah, verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus, an island, and Cyrene, which is in North Africa, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. That's interesting. Not preaching Christ, not preaching Messiah, preaching the Lord Jesus. What Luke is telling us is that, oh my goodness, it's gone out of Judea. Now we have Gentiles preaching to Gentiles. This church thing has legs. It's taking off. We have Gentiles preaching to Gentiles. That's remarkable. Again, there is some tattletale somewhere. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, this is happening in parallel, we think, time-wise, as Peter and John being up in Samaria in chapter 8. So there's not the apostles handy, and so they send Barnabas north to Antioch. Antioch at this time is probably the third largest city in the Roman Empire, 250,000 people in population. It is a very debauched city. Very depraved, very worldly. It's on the mouth of a river. It's a major shipping point. Uh, lots of sailors. It's very foul and polluted. It was the great joke of the Roman Empire how filthy Antioch was. And it's there! It's there that the Gentile church really begins to take root. Right there in Antioch. Verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. What a great expression. I, I so hope that is true of you and of me. When we see the grace of God, it gladdens our hearts. And he exhorted them all to remain. That is, he encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Well, how do you remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose? We're going to find out later what he means by that is abide in God's word. Do not depart from God's word. I'll show you later why we can say that. For he, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord because that's the kind of person that God loves to use. Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. I wish there was a better translation. He didn't just look for Saul. He had to go exploring and investigate. He couldn't find him. Saul of Tarsus has been converted in Acts chapter 9. And we know that for at least three years, he spends out in the Arabian desert being taught directly by Jesus himself. And then for 14 more years, he sits up in Tarsus in Cilicia, which is today southeastern Turkey. And for 14 years, at least, we think, he's working for his daddy, making tents. We don't hear anything about his ministry. He's been taught by Jesus for three years, and now he's working for his dad. This PhD of PhDs, Pharisee of Pharisees, sitting in the backwater of Tarsus and Cilicia making tents. He had to have been discouraged. But the church begins to explode in Antioch, and Barnabas goes, oh, wait a second. This is now way bigger than any of us. We need to go get somebody who can carry this load, who can carry this burden. I know just the guy. I'm going to go and get him. Which leads me to principle number five. Leaders enlist people who are better than they are. Leaders enlist people who are better than they are because they're more concerned for God's mission than their own success. I wasn't kidding when I say I love to install new elders and deacons because this is the very best of us. They're better than me. They're more gifted, more skilled. 
skilled, more adept in so many other ways than I am. The ministry sits on them. Barnabas is a great indicator and an example of this. Leaders enlist people who are better than they are. By the way, it's interesting that Saul of Tarsus is sitting in Tarsus in Cilicia for 14 years, probably stewing in discouragement, and yet God allows that to happen. So, quick little side application, when you find someone who is in a long, dark night of the soul, don't be so quick to try to rescue them out of it. Enter into their grief. Enter into their uncertainty. Pray with them. Love them. Impart joy of your own testimony. But don't be so quick to pull them out because the Lord Jesus might not be ready for them just yet. Oftentimes we have a tendency to want to rescue people out of their discouragement to salve our own discomfort. Jesus leaves Saul in Cilicia for 14 years. And then he brings him out. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Verse 26, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. He brought Paul to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Principle number six, leaders build into a group an identity centered in Christ. For an entire year, Saul and Barnabas preach and teach doctrine so that the thing that would be true about these backwater pagan Gentile but now believers would be their identity in Christ. That's why they didn't go off and do a whole bunch of programs in and around the community, which is great stuff. But what they first did is they built the underpinnings of the faith. They taught doctrine for an entire year. They trained them how to be steadfast in the Lord. And by the way, Paul and Barnabas both did this, which is a great reminder that no one individual pastor or elder or teacher or leader can do the work of ministry by themselves. Nobody has been given all of the gifts of the Spirit. We have a plurality of leadership and ministry leaders. For an entire year they taught. It was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. They didn't call themselves Christians. They would not have thought themselves worthy of that. So as I asked at the beginning, what does it mean to be a Christian? As now, it meant something very different than what they meant. But this was fascinating. The outside world, the pagan Gentiles of Antioch were saying, I don't know what's going on over there, but those people are like Jesus. That's what Christian means. They're little Christs. The outside was calling them Jesus-like. It wasn't a political label that had nothing to do with the color of the state voting, red or blue. It had everything to do with those people are like Jesus. We don't know much about it, but they seem to be exactly like their Lord and their Savior. See, a Christian is someone who loves Jesus and is like Jesus. They were called that in Antioch, not in Jerusalem, in a Gentile context. That's very instructive. Verse 28, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold. Anytime you see Agabus stand up at your church, you're going to want to raise the blinds. It's about to get dark in there, right? He never has good news. He stood up and he foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Oh, I love Dr. Luke, who is going to cite real world history. A famine did take place in the Middle East under the emperorship of Emperor Claudius. Why is that an important detail? Because this is history. This happened. Be encouraged. Be equipped. This is not myth nor legend. Luke wants our Roman Western readership to believe this all happened. Verse 29. So the disciples determined things are going to get tough. We better build a rainy day fund and take care of ourselves and 
to heck with everybody else. No, it doesn't say that. I hope your translation doesn't have that in there. That would be a great error. No, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. This is the first time we have instance of the church reaching across racial, ethnic, and national and socioeconomic boundaries to love and support one another. It happens in Antioch. These products of the harvest of the mission of God are now themselves reaching back to support those who reached them to begin with. That is astonishing. These Gentile believers are now sending aid in the midst of their own famine to support the church in Jerusalem, which is getting absolutely crushed because of the persecution that began with Stephen in Acts chapter 7. That's astonishing, which leads me to leadership principle number 7. Leaders call people to something beyond themselves. Barnabas and Paul evidently were saying, hey, this is not just about first Antioch. This is about the church of Jesus marching forward. This is about the kingdom of God taking root and expanding in ways that we could never manage or predict or lead on our own. But we get to be a part of something that is beyond our own border. We get to be a, be a part of something that is going to be beyond our own lifetime. Like, don't you understand, church in Antioch, that this thing is going to go to the ends of the earth and you get to be a part of supplying and resourcing it. Leaders call people to something beyond themselves. Well, verse 30, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word. These two leaders are, I think, wonderfully indicative and inspiring examples of what it means to be Christian leaders. Leaders lead people to Jesus, not to follow any kind of formula. So it really begs the question, what is a Christian and are you one? Or have you been so inundated and inculcate into some Christian culture that you don't even know Jesus? If that's you this morning, I just want you to know there's grace, and I invite you to believe. He's a person. He's not a process. He is alive, and he is lovable, and he loves you. I want you to know that this whole church's leadership structure is designed and architected and arranged so that we can lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. It is not intended to be formulaic so that you will follow a process. We want to introduce you and to continue to walk hand in hand with Jesus. And so, if I may, in a concluding principle, what is Christian leadership? Christian leadership is fundamentally about taking people where they do not want to go so that they can enjoy all that God desires for them. Sometimes we lead people through difficult seasons of life, and they don't want to go because they have a sin nature, and they have flesh issues, and oh, by the way, I am chief among them. I've got all kinds of jacked up garbage to deal with, but I'm thankful for a group of loving leaders, elders, deacons, other ministry leaders who prod me, push me, and pull me. By the way, this is a great model for parenting. This is how and why we parent. To, to lead people to do things they probably don't want to do so that they will become who God desires for them to be. We say this all the time. This is what parenting's about, not just imposing consequence when they get it wrong so that we can stop being inconvenienced. That's bad parenting. No, no, no. It is realizing this is Christian leadership. I get to hold this crown over their heads and lead them to do things they probably don't want to do on their own so that they will grow into the person that God created them to be. By the way, husbands, 
This is how we love our wives. Wives, this is how we love our husbands. Neighbors, this is how we love our neighbors, coworkers, community members. This is how we do that, is we have a vision for them, and we lovingly lead them in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I've spent a whole lot of time in the book of Acts over the last few weeks because this is preparatory for what we're going to enter into beginning next week. As Luke is writing to a primarily Roman readership, and we're seeing the Apostle Paul, that's because, Lord willing, beginning next Sunday, August 11th, we're going to start a lengthy sermon series in the book of Romans. And we will be in the book of Romans until we are no longer in the book of Romans. <laughs> so I have outlined it. I think I know how long it's going to take, and Jesus gets a good belly roll laugh out of that. We're going to start preaching through Romans beginning next Sunday, August 11th, I pray, and I mean I am praying, and I invite you to do the same, that God would use this wonderful letter written to a Roman readership to speak directly into the lives of the people of this campus, of this church, and this community. The righteousness of God broken forth. Let me invite you to pray with me. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you've done. We thank you for the example of these leaders, and I pray, God, if there's anyone here this morning who merely has a pedigree of a Christian culture trying to follow a formula but does not know you, would you break forth, give them belief, would they understand, receive, and believe that Jesus is alive and that he's coming again? Would you lead them into a saving knowledge of your son? Would you give us a church wisdom, discernment to lead these people, to have boldness and courage to say true but possibly hard things? And may salvation come to this house. For the rest of us, Father, would you continue to raise us up? If we are Christians who love Jesus and are like Jesus, then we are leaders. Would you give us boldness and wisdom to lead where we are? We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us this morning in worship. A couple things going on. We've always got someone here ready and willing to pray with you here at the front. Also, any of our elders and deacons, I'm going to invite you to stick around back in that corner. We've got a special little guy we want to pray for who's having a procedure uh, this week. So let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction, and then we will be dismissed. Now to him who is able to do more than we can ever ask or imagine. To him be glory forever in the church. God bless. We're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.